Our Father, we're grateful for the um, lovely day that we have enjoyed. We thank you for the calling to work and your service and the various callings we have. And now for the opportunity to embrace this shared calling to grow in our knowledge of Christ and his word, uh, that we might grow better in our uh, admiration and love for him and devotion to his service. We pray that would be the great end of our efforts this evening, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, our method is going to be just to work our way through the chapter um, with me either asking you questions or uh, me commenting on some point that it seems to me it might be helpful, um, um, or addressing questions from you. So don't hesitate to interrupt if you um, need to. And I think if we have the time, I'm going to open each of our sessions with reading the scripture that Dr. Ferguson is um, going to be addressing, just so that whole section is fresh in our mind. So we're on chapter one. This is page three, the mind of Christ. And our text is John 13, one through 12. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied around, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you, don't under, you do not understand now, but after you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, my hands. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, because is complete, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Oh, that's our text. (laughs) We break off with the question. So um, this is a remarkable uh, circumstance. As Dr. Ferguson will elaborate a little later in the text, um, with this scene, Jesus' public ministry and John's account of it has come to an end. What follows are what are called the farewell discourses, the final words of Jesus to his disciples, and then the events surrounding his death. Herman Ritterboss comments concerning what follows in, in our text this evening. A grander opening of the story of Jesus' death is hardly imaginable. 
and I feel like, uh, though I've I had heard that Ritter Bossett made that comment before many years ago, I feel like having read Dr. Ferguson's account of it, it's even more true. Um, Dr. Ferguson's narrative, at least to my mind, uh, brings us with this wonderful sense of immediacy in these events, uh, the way he um, br- brings the narrative, as it were, right before our very eyes. Uh, he takes us into the upper room and he sets the stage there for us of what is about to happen, uh, noting that there'll be a betrayal, they'll be scattered, uh, and then the various trials that Jesus, Jesus undergoes before being led uh, to the cross. Uh, he mentions the uh, Via Dolorosa as the pathway to the cross. Um, I'm interested to know, are, 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 any of you don't know what the Via Doloroso is? If you don't, I would take a, a kind of badge of honor. <laughs> um, the, uh, what's that? Yes, that's right. Uh, it can be translated sorrowful. Um, often it's translated suffering, although there's a different Latin word for suffering, but uh, it, it gets at the idea. Um, this is a processional route in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, supposed to be the path that Jesus took, forced by Roman citizen, soldiers on his way to the crucifixion. It's a winding route through the old city. It's about 2,000 feet in length, and it's celebrated uh, since the uh, early Middle Ages uh, as a place of Christian pilgrimage. The current route that's used has only been established since the 18th century, replacing various earlier versions of the route. And today it's marked by the nine stations of the cross, There have been 14 stations since the late 15th century. The remaining five are inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In the 14th century, Pope Clement VI achieved some consistency in the route finally, and he established the Franciscan Order as uh, those who would be in charge of uh, this part of the Holy Land and and charge the friars with providing guidance, instruction, and care for the Latin pilgrims, as well as the guardianship, maintenance, and defense of the Catholic shrines in the Holy Land. So beginning in around 1350, the Franciscan friars conducted official tours along the Via Doloroso, and from the uh, onset of the Franciscans, um, the development was immediately linked to the devotional practices of the friars in Europe. Uh, They were ardent proponents of devotional meditation as a means to access and understand the passion. And so the Via Dolorosa was intended to be a physical pilgrimage. There would be various stations, and you would contemplate in these places the realities, and this meditation was thought to increase your uh, grasp of Christ and what he had done. Now, the sad thing is that this is entirely superstition. Uh, nobody knows for sure the route. It keeps changing. Even now, the scholars are saying they don't have the route right. And even if they did have the route right, under the New Testament, Jesus made clear that there are no holy places 
there were holy places in the Old Testament. You remember the dispute between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She said her fathers had it right that the holy place was Mount Gerizim and uh, Jesus told her, no, it's in fact what the Jews have at Jerusalem in the temple. But then he went on to say, a time is coming and now is, when neither in that place nor in Jerusalem, but in every place, in spirit and in truth. Um, So, um, there are no, it's not a historical route, there aren't any places even if there was one, but what they do get right is the idea that devotional meditation on the realities of Jesus' experience is a powerful thing for our growth in piety. And what I want to suggest at the outset is that, in a sense, Dr. Ferguson is taking us on a sort of via dolorosa, not one of superstition, not one attached to the experience of certain places, but rather via the words of Jesus, on his last night with his disciples and then his actions through uh, to his resurrection. And that this is a wonderful opportunity to have to meditate on these realities that the word of God sets before us uh, that can stir our hearts and cause us to grow in love and admiration and devotion of Jesus. So that that's a, a little introduction. And if I, I hope I haven't upset anyone who's been a pilgrim on the violet. Also, but uh, at least uh, I've given evidence of my good Protestant credentials. Um, <clears throat> well, the point is that after this evening, uh, Jesus will never be with his disciples uh, again in teaching in this way. He goes to his death. Um, but this is not the end, Dr. Ferguson notes. It's just the end of the beginning. And Uh, though Jesus will be dead and crucified in 24 hours, uh, he's well aware that this destiny is not the end. And he's trying to help prepare his disciples for the matter. Um, Soon, uh, uh, the one that would betray him will be dismissed from their company. Peter will be um, humiliated about the prophecy of his denying Christ. And the longest prayer ever recorded from Christ. What Dr. Ferguson wants to insist on is the proper Lord's Prayer um, will be offered and we'll have an opportunity um, in wonderful intimacy to listen in to Jesus in his relationship with his Heavenly Father, in his relationship with his disciples, um, and to listen in as he prays not only for them, but as he prays for us. for all those who, like ourselves, will become disciples in the future. And so there's this wonderful sense in that way in particular that we're drawn in to this upper room uh, discourse. Um, Further, we can look forward in Dr. Uh, Ferguson's exposition um, with respect to the ultimate significance of the high priestly prayer, as it's often called, Um, It's often profoundly misunderstood and to great harm. But it's wonderful to think that Jesus, on the night before his death, was thinking of and praying for uh, folks like ourselves. So, um, Dr. Ferguson wants us to feel something of the great drama here. And on page uh, five, at the bottom... 
This paragraph is particularly striking, it seems to me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that his uh, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper. What remarkable conjunctions are found in this paragraph? It's the greatest feast of life and salvation of the year, the Passover. But at the same time, a more greater and a greater and more terrible time had come, the time of Jesus' death. That withstanding, a love undying perseveres in the face of death, and so too in the face of betrayal, there is not helplessness before the wicked, Jesus a mere victim, but there is the most exalted agency imaginable. So the the, the narrative is just uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, sparking with the electricity of the tensions that are in play in all of this. And Dr. Uh, Ferguson does a wonderful job of opening all this up for us. Um, but he um, builds and builds and builds uh, till we get to the place where um, he washes their feet. He gives us the account of it. And uh, then he is going to begin a deeper exposition of it. But surely this event must have been one of the most traumatizing events in the apostles' lives, to be transcended only by the crucifixion itself. Uh, and you, you can see that in the horror that Peter draws back uh, in um, when Jesus goes to wash his feet. Um, well, so we want to know what to make of all of this. And uh, he, Dr. Ferguson is going to cover it in two chapters because we're going to pick up the foot washing uh, again in the second chapter. But um, before we can understand what we're to make of it, Dr. Ferguson wants to give us a little lesson on reading. And that is he wants to say that every time we read a passage of the Bible, there are two contexts that um, come together. Uh the first of these contexts is our own context. We read this uh, not in the first instance as a history book. We read it as those who believe that there are words of life in this book, uh, that these sacred writings, as Dr. Ferguson cites, are able to make us wise to salvation. So we come with our own uh, personal concerns about the passage. And that's entirely right. But Dr. Packer, or Dr. Ferguson wants to remind us that those personal concerns can't be the first thing in our reading, but rather they have to flow out of um, the second context, that is the context of um, what's going on in the gospel itself, the historical context, um, what is being said to us about uh, real events, as Dr. Schaefer used to put it, in time and space. Um, and if we don't get 
um, the historical context of what is taking place, we'll never be able to properly um, bring uh, our personal context to bear on it and to find it um, bringing fruit to our lives. So that's um, what Dr. Ferguson wants us to help uh, wants to help us do straight away. He wants us to understand these events in their context in John's Gospel, and then in the context of what is to come as well in the pages that follow. So he notes that there uh, are two parts um, to the Gospel after a prologue. The prologue uh, opens up. Um, the, the famous prologue that begins in chapter 1 and goes through verse 18 of that chapter. Uh, then we have an epilogue at chapter 21, and in between are these two parts, uh, chapter 1 uh, through 12, sometimes called the Book of Signs, and then uh, part 2, uh, chapter 13 through t- 20, uh, the Book of the Passion. So there's the structure, prologue, epilogue, part one, the book of signs, part two, the book of the passion. The book of signs set the pattern of John's investigation because typically what John does is he um, uh, brings um, to light a teaching of Jesus, as for illustration, the light of the world, Uh, Then uh, he illustrates this by some sign, in this case giving uh, the man born blind his sight. Seven of such signs take up the first chapter, and um, uh, there's the turning of water into wine, there is the healing of the official son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the sea, giving sight to the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus. And then, as Dr. Um, Ferguson says, the whole matter uh, ends rather uh, abruptly. Um, uh, this is on page 7 at the bottom. Um, the, uh, we read at the end of the section, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed? what he has heard of us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Uh, John twelve thirty six, and following, quoting from Isaiah 53. So uh, a kind of stark ending to that part one, uh, where we're left kind of hanging, and, uh, and it looks like on a pretty sad note, but um, we're suddenly ushered in, transported, in Dr. Ferguson's words, um, without explanation, into a room in Jerusalem uh, during the Passover week. And that brings us to what Dr. Ferguson speaks of as John's inside story. But let me pause there and uh, see if you have any questions or concerns or um, observations to make about anything we've um, uh, touched on so far. I'd be particularly interested if you, how you respond to the immediacy of uh, Dr. Ferguson. He uses an image in the introduction that uh, from a television set, but it strikes me more um, that it, it's like a commentator at a great sports event, like the Olympics. He's, 
he's describing the action, not only the action, but the meaning of the action, and it's all immediate. It's all taking place right before us, and it's uh, quite powerful in my mind, but maybe you find it off-putting. Anybody want to comment on any of that? I, I, I agree. I agree with you. But, you know, intellectually, I know that um, you know this is the night before Jesus goes to his death. But when you're just kind of reading it, it doesn't have that same sense of you know one day, you know, one after another. Because sometimes you read one chapter, then you might read the next chapter the next day. But the way he puts it in there, I mean, he sets it all in. This is what is happening. You're up here in the room. You know, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to himself. He knows he's going to his death tomorrow, and this is what he does. And so it, I think you're, you're right. It does, it does lend a wonderful sense of almost like you're, you're there. You're there witnessing this yourself. Yes, yeah. Um, the... Uh, uh, there was a program on when I was a kid... Um, I think it was called I Can See It Now and it was newsreels of great events in history and I was absolutely captivated by that program I, it was usually on Saturday I would never miss it and because the whole way the newsreels were shown they were narrated, narrated as if they were taking place then and there and it really drew you into the matter uh, it was very powerful Anyone else, a comment or a thought or a reflection? Question about anything in the text we've covered so, so far? I, I always appreciate when someone gives you the kind of big picture of what you're looking at before you focus in. So I, even though it's a little bit perhaps mundane, I really appreciated the, the structure of the book that Dr. Ferguson went through for us of John, um, John's Gospel, before now diving in, because it helps me realize that we're kind of thinking John's thoughts after him, where this isn't just sort of a random set of yes. events that happen to be listed. Yes, wonderful, wonderful point. Any other thoughts? All right, let's press on. We're on page eight uh, under the heading John's Inside Story. And here um, in this section, Dr. Ferguson is going to contrast John's gospel with the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You probably know uh, that they're called synoptic because they're much more oriented toward um, chronology and organizing events as they happened but with emphases that belong to each of the gospel writers. Whereas we've already seen, John's gospel is hardly concerned with chronology at all until the very end, uh, where chronology comes forward to the uh, in, into a detailed, almost slow motion picture compared to the way the, the uh, synoptics deal with it. And, um, and, 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 and this leads to some distinctive characteristics uh, so Dr. Uh, Ferguson uh, speaks of this as a very different feel from the three go- the, the synoptics. And the lovely quote on uh, Calvin, 
just there is worth um, paying attention to. The other three are more copious in their narratives of the life and death of Jesus, but John dwells more largely on the doctrine by which the office of Christ, together with the power of his death and resurrection, is unfolded. All of them have had the same object in view to point out Christ. The three formally exhibit his body, if we may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits his soul. On this account, I am accustomed to say that the gospel, this gospel is the key to open the door for the understanding of the rest. For whosoever shall understand the power of Christ, as it were here strikingly portrayed, will afterwards read with advantage what the others relate about the Redeemer who is manifested. I think that's a brilliant insight of Calvin's um, and worth informing our reading of the Gospels and the relationship. A very, very powerful point to explain what I think most of us have probably experienced in the comparison between them, but perhaps haven't been able to put into so many words. Um, Anyone on your own experience of reading uh, the Synoptics uh, versus John? Dave, it's Molly. Yes. I was, um, I guess I was kind of dwelling on this before you asked that question, but um, certainly not to diminish the Synoptic Gospels, but if the, um, if what comes forth from the Gospel of John is uh, devotion or, or is doctrine, then isn't there this sense of devotion that follows that is that is peculiar to the reading of John um, in comparison to reading the synoptics. Oh yeah, I think Calvin there, don't be misled by his use of the word doctrine. He's just meaning the teaching. Uh, and what he's saying is that the, it's the teaching with respect to Christ's inner life and purposes more than the synoptics ever get into. And that leads us, uh, as it were, an entree into the heart of Christ, which I think has the effect of opening up our hearts. That's, that's what I was thinking, that in a particular way, that's the response that comes forth out of a reading of John, um, but, mm. not, not, uh, but much more strongly than in Matthew and Luke and Mark. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But, but that, I'm, that's probably not where you were headed. No, no, that's, it. that's just it. I think that's what <laughs> Calvin's trying to get us to. All right, well, thanks. Any other thoughts on that? Yes? Um, I was just thinking, I've always, John has always been my favorite of the four, just to go back to and reread, and I think this kind of explains why, where especially growing up in the church, when the stories start to feel very familiar, I think especially with the other three Gospels, the stories become really familiar, and John has a way of writing that keeps it um, more, not new necessarily, because I've still read it, but it retains more of the wonder, I guess, mm. because of the poetry of the way he's writing and the, the inner aspect to it. Yes, yeah, wonderful, Grace. Wonderful. Well, um, that's the first section. Um, the uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to follow up on those observations by saying that what he's 
said by way of contrast synoptics to the Gospel of John generally, that this is preeminently true in chapters 13 through 17. Um, And why it's going to be such a wonderful opportunity for us to study this section closely. He notes that this conversation would have lasted several hours. Um, it, It must have been just incredible to be with Jesus as he taught these things. And here we get to sit in on that and to, uh, to follow along. Um, so he begins with the narrative of uh, by talking about this as an expression, his love for his disciples. Um, and the passage as a whole participates in that pattern of the signs. We have a teaching about his love, and then we have a sign, the sign of his washing the disciples' feet, and then he provides an explanation of it. Uh, So in a way, it fits in with the sign elements as the prologue to this new and concluding section of the gospel. Um, He notes that it would have been a very private gathering, um, although he does bring Luke into the uh, situation, reminding us that Luke tells us there was a very untoward conversation going on among the disciples at the Passover, arguing which of them was the greatest. And uh, Jesus is rebuked to them that I am among you as one who serves. Uh, And Dr. Ferguson speculates that perhaps it was at that point that he rose from the table uh, to wash the feet. Um, But the point is, in that culture, it would have belonged to a servant when there were guests coming to a house, went upon entrance to the house to wash their feet. It was so private that apparently there were no servants. Uh, Dr. Pack, uh, Dr. Ferguson notes that um, I'm teaching on Dr. Packer's concise theology every morning this week, so that's why I keep getting the names mixed up. I've been spending the whole morning from 9 to 12 talking about Dr. Packer, and I get to spend this evening talking about Dr. Ferguson, so my apologies. But... Um, uh, but they could have washed each other's feet. Um, but you can see how the conversation in Luke didn't set, set the stage for them to be willing to do that. So they were there without the typical standards of hospitality being met. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and starts to wash their feet. The master doing what the servants should have done and what they could have done had they had the humility to do it. And and that's why it's just too much for Peter to bear. He's appalled and uh, resists. Um, And on page 10, Dr. Ferguson points out that this is a prophetic action, the way we often see in the Old Testament prophets, where they they, um, live out in their actions what it is they're trying to um, reveal in words. And uh, here, um, this... uh, Foot washing is understood by Dr. Ferguson to be the acting out of a parable of the gospel itself. He reveals in this action his identity and the purpose of his ministry. And to help us see this, uh, Dr. Ferguson gives us a wonderful chart uh, following out uh, what John says in this foot washing and what Paul the Apostle understands by the humiliation of Christ in Philippians 2, 6 to 9. 
uh, and this is quite striking. I've never seen anyone do this before. Um, that uh, Paul, Christ-given understanding of Christ's identity and purpose in his ministry is paralleling the parts of the sign of foot washing. And it's interesting to note, um, this passage in Philippians is principally about, on the face of it, Paul giving instructions about practical Christian living among the Philippians. In verses 1 through 5 of this passage, it's all about how they ought to be caring for one another and putting one another first and uh, uh, willing to serve one another. And it's in the context of that intensely practical instruction that probably the greatest and most penetrating analysis of the incarnation in the whole Bible takes place, which is just astonishing to me every time I think of it. Um, you don't have any more thorough and penetrating analysis of the doctrine of the God-man than in these verses. And it's brought up as a practical help uh, to Christians living in this world together in a way that reflects who they are in Christ. Um, And so you see these in each part, you have some act of Jesus in the foot washing that parallels that what Paul then doctrinally explains the deeper uh, uh, reality of who Christ is. So he was in the form of God, and John had said Christ's self-consciousness in getting up was that he had come with God. He knew his reality in God. Uh, And so he rose from the supper. Supper Here is he's not uh, demanding that... Uh, he be served, but he is willing to serve. And this is parallel to he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, He lays aside his garments. And the Philippian text, probably not a happy translation, but nevertheless, he emptied himself. In other words, in both cases, he's putting some things aside. And then he takes something else up. In the case of the towel, it's the uh, implements of the servant. In the case of Philippians, it's the actual form of servanthood that he takes upon himself. Um, in the uh, uh, the symbolic uh, uh, illustration, he pours water into a, a basin. He's pouring out. In the Philippians text, he's pouring himself out. He's humbling himself. He begins to wash the feet. Um, he, and... Uh, Paul says he's obedient even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Uh, He's finished that. And remember that if Peter's to have any part in Christ, he must have his feet washed. And of course, that shows the necessity of uh, Christ's work on the cross. And he puts on his outer garments and resumes his place. And then we have at the conclusion of Paul's exposition that Christ resumes his place. Uh, He's highly exalted in what he has done. Uh, And God has bestowed upon him a name above every other name. Um, So he he shows us in a very provocative way uh, that point by point Jesus is acting out symbolically what Paul describes theologically. Um, uh, Quite a remarkable parallel. Anybody a question or comment about that?
Dave, can I ask a question? Um, so I did find it uh, very helpful, and I it made me see a lot more in in the whole um, episode here. I I will admit I had a, a question about allegorizing and the the concerns that can come with that. I don't think Dr. Ferguson is at all guilty of that here, but help me just understand a little more clearly why. Um, just that we've seen, and I always think of Harold Camping, who would um, take uh, accounts of historical accounts and, and spin the craziest things out of them. Um, again, I don't think Dr. Ferguson's doing that at all. This was very helpful, but it did come to my mind. Would you? Sure. And, and that's fair enough. Well, what you mentioned before should help set the stage for this consideration. Uh, because what John is doing regularly is taking actions of Jesus and saying that these are symbolic representations of teaching that he's given. So that there's no question uh, about whether it's fair and in this case, it wouldn't be allegorizing. It would just be recognizing uh, the symbolism and the parallels between the symbolism and the uh, teaching itself, uh, more as illustrations, I think, than allegories. Um, but um, so, so that sets the stage for us coming to this, uh, this point. And clearly since Jesus is going to go on and say, look, I did this because I'm teaching you something about myself and something about who you ought to be, that then certainly invites, I don't want to get ahead of next week, but um, the the idea that all we have is something literal is what plagues Roman Catholicism and some of the Anabaptist movements and other places who think that somehow this is just simply a thing to be done, and that ends it. And if we just do something like this annually or something, we fulfilled what this whole incident was about. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so uh, Dr. Ferguson is going to follow now with what he thinks are um, five stages of uh, understanding the incident of the foot washing. Uh, the five of them he brings up under the origin, uh, humiliation, salvation, exaltation, and implication. And with respect to each of them, he wants to say that uh, this helps us to understand part of what's just taken place in the foot washing. Um, so let me ask you, you may not have had a chance to read cl real closely, but can anybody uh, give us a, a summary? I'm in really a concise theology mood this week. <laughs> can anyone give us a concise statement of what Dr. Ferguson wants to say under origin? I'd be interested to hear your reading of it. Anybody want to have a go at that? I'm going to ask that about each one. So if if, uh, if forewarned warned is forearmed. Um, anybody want to have a go at it? What's origin referring to with respect to 
uh, the foot washing circumstance. Hey, Dave, I'll take a stab oh, All right. Wasn't this um, Jesus kind of acknowledging where he came from and who he and who he is? He's recognized. I mean, he obviously knows who he is, but, but you know, John makes it explicit that he knows where he comes from. He knows what he was sent to do, and this is how he's then going to go ahead and wash his disciples' feet. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's a powerful point, isn't it? That it, it's. It's precisely out of his knowledge of who he is and his mission that this foot washing is taken to be fairly one of the culminating acts of his entire ministry. And that connection, I, I think Dr. Ferguson just very powerfully sets before us. Um, because of all the ways that we, we, we might think that in some way, the foot washing and all that follows might diminish Jesus, especially the uh, Vine del Rosa, the, um, the beatings and the mockings and the uh, crucifixion and uh, all that follows that. Um, that here, at the entree to the foot washing, John portrays Jesus as in control of events. He's not the helpless subject of forces beyond his control. This is particularly uh, evident in the repeated claim Jesus knew. He knew that it was his hour. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew who it was that would betray him. He knows who he has chosen. And with all of this knowledge then, What does Jesus do? Well, on page 11 at the bottom, Dr. Uh, Ferguson Lovely says, watch him. (laughs) Here's what he does out of this reality. And you have the brief description of the uh, uh, events of the foot washing. Um, So that's a powerful framework for understanding the whole incident. And in fact, Dr. Ferguson wants to say this is a kind of a prologue to book two uh, that's not entirely different from the prologue that we had to uh, book one. Um, That we had in the beginning was the word, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here we have uh, that um, uh, in the beginning... Christ uh, understands very well who he is and where he is from. Uh, But then, when he uh, goes to sit down at the end, uh, he uses the same words, um, that uh, he, um, the same phrase, uh, that he is uh, face to face with God. Uh, So, yeah, I think that captures it beautifully. Anybody, a question or comment about that section? I better watch our time here, but I think we're doing okay. But yeah, just 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 a question. I guess you don't catch that in English that there's a parallel between uh, John's prologue in this section here, where where he's using and repeating the same phrases in uh, in the Greek. Right. So I'm glad he brought that out because I would have never. Yes. That yes. <laughs> right. 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 All right. Humiliation. Um, 
Anybody want to have a go at summarizing that? What what does that convey to us with respect to Jesus and the foot washing? And in a sense, you're going to draw on the origin point that's gone forward in this second stage. Well, effectively, um, I think you could sum it up. The the, the exalted God and king uh, takes on the form of a servant. Um, The... um, and at the bottom of page 12, Dr. Ferguson has that nice thought experiment saying, given this intro to a sentence, where do you expect the sentence to go? And um, I, I find that persuasive, but in fact, the sentence goes a different way altogether. So he shows us um, that in this dramatic form, uh, Jesus is showing the wonder of his humility in the incarnation. And here's where Paul gets into the uh, discussion of emptied himself. Um, And uh, he notices briefly, Dr. Ferguson does in passing, that there have been a huge discussion over the meaning of these words, Uh, most of it not particularly helpful, (laughs) Uh, most of it leading to some kind of a heresy of one form or another. Even the lovely hymn, one of my favorite hymns, and can it be, there are people who have been very suspicious of it because of the line uh, that Christ emptied himself of all but love. And uh, the point is, is it possible for some, in some way for this to be saying that Christ became less than God uh, the, during the time of his incarnation? And Dr. Ferguson's comment is nice, in grasping the fact that the emptying is not by subtraction from his deity, but rather by addition, by the taking on of uh, frail humanity. He didn't empty out anything that was intrinsic to deity, but he assumed things that put him into the form of a servant. Uh, in order that he, being born of a woman, being born under the law, uh, might pay the penalty of the law on our behalf. Um, and at, at this point, let me just add a couple of thoughts. Um, Dr. Ferguson is emphasizing attributes, um, but it can be helpful as well to add this, that in saying Christ emptied himself, Paul isn't speaking about being, but rather he's speaking about prerogatives. In a sense, normally we say that the authorized version of the King James uh, gets improved upon by some of our modern translations. But in a sense, the uh, authorized version is better here. It renders that he made himself of no reputation. And, And that's much closer to the idea that Paul has. Um, It's not a transformation of substance, but rather an astonishing addition. He who is in the very form of God took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So it's not a deceptive show. It's not appearance only because here the form of a servant means 
takes on all the essential qualities and attributes of a servant. Just as earlier when it said he was uh, of the form of God, it meant in that context, he had all the essential qualities and attributes of God. And so what we have here is an assertion of real humanity, complete, taking on, while at the same time he remained fully uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So that emptied himself means he made no account of himself. Um, Christ took no advantage of his position. Notice, this isn't even just self-denial, because self-denial sometimes implies that what is denied is evil, or that the mere purpose of self-denial is self-mastery. But in the Incarnation, it is not that what was Christ's by right would be wrong for him to enjoy, nor is it that it was simply uh, an exercise of self-mastery, but rather in the incarnation, the rights and enjoyments that were his were put aside for a purpose, a purpose to do good for others, helpless sinners such as ourselves. It's pure unselfishness and self-sacrifice. Under the power of love, he esteemed others more than himself, No compulsion, no desire for self, no hope of personal gain, no fear of loss. Simple, unselfish, self-sacrificing love. Uh, That's what we have portrayed here. And all in the beautiful uh, illustration of taking on the work of a servant in washing the feet of his disciples. Um, The... uh, and in fact, Dr. Ferguson, um, at the conclusion of this section, or at the beginning of page 14, said that in fact, uh, if in some way his divinity was, uh, divinity was diminished, it would lessen the significance of this matter. Because it would just be another man who was doing good to other men, less fortunate than himself. But the, the extraordinary moment here is that uh, this is the service of God humbling self to man, not just a man, but the sinful man. Um, well, the third element is salvation uh, that somehow is pictured in this foot washing. Um, anyone have a quick sense of a summary? Before that, can I just ask about the servant? Yes. When we hear Jesus' threefold office, prophet, priest, king, if you had servant as a fourth, or why wouldn't that be joined? Uh, because it's a just a category mistake. Um, the um, Or, uh, I, I'd say it's either a category mistake or um, it's a... Um, a failure to grasp the significance of what kind of king, what kind of prophet, what kind of priest. It's a category mistake in that um, these are categories of office that were uh, promised in Israel and were all crucial to the hope and expectation of Israel. And Christ summed up those three great offices in his own person. So it, it, it would distort the category of the fulfillment of Old Testament offices to add anything to it. 
So but, qualifies those offices. Yeah, I think that would be better. He's a servant king. He's a servant priest. Uh, he, he's a servant prophet. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's more um, uh, the the, um, uh, the way in which he fulfills those offices. So it, not only is it a shock that we have one who fills them all. But it's the more extraordinary shock of the, the one that is profoundly humbling himself in the fulfillment of them all. Good point. All right. Anyone else on this? Well, we'd better press on. The clock's really chasing me now. Um, salvation. Here, I think uh, that the foot washing is a picture of what Jesus does uh, for our cleansing and justification. Um, the uh, And you can see that because of the way that uh, Jesus re- replies to Peter. It, it's a sign of Christ's cleansing that brings us to justification. And that he does on our behalf as a servant uh, and uh, taking... Um, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so the rebuke is quite solemn. If you won't have your feet washed, you have nothing to do with me. But then the caveat, as you lovely Peter, he, he goes one way too far and then goes the other way too far. Well, Peter says, all right, then I, I want to be washed entirely. And Jesus said, no, you're not getting it. In fact, the cleansing that's symbolized by this foot washing, you've already had. You've had faith in me. And you are cleansed. You are set apart unto me by faith. You are justified now. And that's not to be done again or any, any more because of the work that I'm about to do in time and space, having its efficacious character applied to all who embrace God, the gospel of God by faith, whether before or after the crucifixion. Um, so uh, that's the picture. Um, the point is that we need to continue to be cleansed. And um, so that's the ongoing work of sanctification that will be true for Peter and for all of us. Uh, but the the symbolism of the foot washing is the once for all work of Christ on our behalf um, and uh, the uh, I think I'd better press on to the end here uh, for the sake of our time I think that's enough to say except that it's it's wonderful on page 16 the insight that Dr. Ferguson shares that uh this battle against Satan that he talks about for a page and a half uh, that begins in the garden. Um, By the way, on page 16, the second paragraph, the word from the page three onward is surely a misprint. It must mean from chapter three onward. Um, But the, the point is that the whole of the story of the Bible is the record of how the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are in perpetual conflict until the day dawns when the serpent himself uh, will crush, uh, himself will crush the um, heel of the seed of the woman. 
but in the process will be dealt himself a crushing death blow. And so here's a reframing of the whole incident. Uh, What we're witnessing here in the upper room is the beginning of the climax of the promise made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Um, That seems to me to be very, very powerful. Um, And uh, so the fourth point is exaltation. um, And that is through the foot washing, Jesus, nevertheless, having taken the form of a servant, the influence of a servant, is having accomplished that. He's going to get up, put his robes on, and sit down and uh, teach as their uh, master, uh, their prophet, priest, and king, and so on. Um, And the point is uh, that throughout this ordeal, Jesus is exalted because he's not a passive victim, but rather he is an active conqueror in it. And him getting up, taking off, uh, putting off the robes and putting on his clothes and sitting and instructing them further is uh, um, a a sign of that reality that, um, uh, that Jesus is the agent here. And the the text that's so potent on this point is in John 10 that Dr. Ferguson quotes on uh, page 17. um, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have uh, uh, authority to take it up again. this, he follows up with a discussion of the prophetic picture of the suffering servant, uh, one who suffers so grievously, uh, yet who will be exalted not in spite of his suffering, but because of his suffering. Um, this picture from Isaiah, Dr. Ferguson says, um, is now symbolically dramatized here by Jesus. He gets up, he kneels down, he washes, but then he resumes his place. Uh, and this uh, leading to his ultimate exaltation by the Father. Um, the implication of all this, well, um, it is uh, that um, he shows us that he is a servant for our sake and that we should follow his example and be a servant for Jesus' sake. Paul the Apostle understood this. He got the lesson of the foot washing in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. He said um, that uh, uh, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Um, And the last point, knowing this is one thing Jesus said, but doing it is another. Uh, the ones who do what they hear will be blessed of Jesus, John 13, 17. And we're going to think more about that next week. Well, look at that. We made it. <laughs> um, the uh, it, I'm happy to stay on for a little more for anybody who would like to. If you have questions or comments or concerns or objections or anything else you'd like to raise. Um, so if you need to drop off, please f- feel free to do so. But if you 
have anything uh, you'd like to talk about, I'm happy to keep talking. I would like to say, please. Yes. That I have found this an incredibly rich hour. I have I feel blessed by it, and I thank you for leading it. I also think that uh, I think I need to say I think I broke etiquette by keeping my camera on because no one else does. Oh no, you're you're keeping the etiquette. The the rest okay. of them are. <laughs> no, no. No, no. I I much prefer. In fact, I, earlier on, you know, we've had so many things with the pandemic. Earlier on, everybody kept the camera on. And I said to somebody, I actually preferred Zoom to being in the classroom. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, look, if I got a large class, 20 people, the people in the back, I can't even see their faces. And when I teach, if I can see people responding, it is so helpful to me. You know, if somebody's frowning, I know they're not getting what I'm saying. I have to work harder. And so, no, you, you've you not broken any adequate. You, you're the teacher's pet here. <laughs> I, I found it very, very rich. I'm very glad oh, that, well, that, thank you. that I'm part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wonderful. Any other thoughts or questions or comments before we quit for the evening. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I, I hope you'll uh, read your chapter and be thoughtful. If there are terms you don't understand, be sure and mark them in the page or questions you want to raise. If you write them in the margin, it'll help you not to have to remember off the top of your head when we actually get to class. Uh, but I do want to have as much discussion as possible. So read with that in thought in mind. Let me pray for us. Our Father, how wonderful it is to be invited uh, to this upper room meeting. To have rehearsed again for us the uh, setting for these things, the remarkable days that will follow, and the way this is the uh, turning point for all human history. And that we uh, are participants not only as observers, but it's those who have a living interest in the reality and truth of these things. And we pray that by your spirit, it would be impressed more and more onto our hearts and minds. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.